1: 80 years ago this month, on the 29th of May 1942, Radio Prague announced that Reinhard Heydrich, the overall head of security in Nazi Germany and a leading architect of the Holocaust, was dying. Just a few days earlier, he had been mortally wounded in Prague as a result of Operation Anthropoid. But what was Operation Anthropoid? Who crafted the mission? Who shot the guns and threw the grenades that killed him? And what were the consequences of killing one of Hitler's most high-ranking officers? Was it worth it? I'm your host, James Rogers. This is the Warfare Podcast, and to find out, I'm happy to welcome George Bearfield back on the podcast. George is author of a new book, Foursquare, The Last Parachutist, which is about the final special operations by Czech-Slovak forces during the Second World War. And it was George's family who took part in this hunt for Heydrich. Hi, George. Welcome to the History Hit Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm good, thanks, James. How are you? I am good. It's great to have you back on again. You're a regular now. I am, yes. Yeah. <laughs> you are, and you're most certainly our, our resident expert on this particular topic and this particular period of history. That is the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia and, of course, the Czech resistance that took place during this time. Now, we did a previous episode on this, but it is now the 80th anniversary of one of the most high-profile Nazi assassinations that took place during the entirety of the Second World War. And this is the assassination of acting protector Reinhard Heydrich. This is a man who Hitler himself described as the man with the iron heart. So there's no love loss here when it comes to talking about his assassination, but there might be when it comes to talking about the repercussions of that assassination. But where should we start with this history, George?
2: Well, I think the seeds of Operation Anthropoid, as it was known, which was the mission that was sponsored by the UK and the Special Operations Executive, but executed by... Not Czech, but Czechoslovak forces, and that's very important. The seeds for that were sown in the Munich Agreement, September 1938, famously when um, Czechoslovakia lost its sort of defensive borderlands, um, the Sudetenland. Strong parallels, really, with today and Ukraine. I mean, it would be the equivalent of the UK government, the French government, agreeing to cede Donbass and the eastern part of Ukraine to Russia, and forcing Zelensky into exile, because that's what happened to Beneš. So he was, at the time of Munich Agreement, part of that agreement was an insistence that he, as the democratically elected president of Czechoslovakia, was to go into exile, as well as them losing their key defensive borderlands. So, you know, Czechoslovakia had formed at the end of the First World War as an independent, democratic, socialist state. It mustn't, as far as Benesch and and those who had supported him, which was the majority of the country were concerned, it mustn't be absorbed into a greater Germany, you know, that would mean being sort of under the heel of Hitler's boot. So that wasn't acceptable. And so Benesch went into exile and tried to plot how he would reclaim his country, which was, you know, an immense task. It was really triggered then. He'd already begun plotting and thinking about what he needed to do. And then in March of thirty nine, Hitler broke the Munich Agreement and invaded the rest of Czechoslovakia. And so as far as Benesch was concerned, everything that had happened post-Munich, was invalidated as well. So he still considered himself the rightful Prime Minister of Czechoslovakia, but his allies didn't necessarily, because things had moved on as far as they were concerned. So he returned to England to reclaim his authority and to reclaim his country. As I say, he wanted to reclaim his authority as leader. He wanted to encourage the allies to fight Germany to its complete defeat, because if there was to be any peace deal, then that wouldn't be good for Czechoslovakia. And he wanted to restore Czechoslovakia to its pre-Munich borders. So For somebody who's basically got nothing in his hand, that's quite a tall order in terms of geopolitical objectives. But at least he had a clarity of his vision and what needed to be achieved.
1: That's no small task, like you say. And did he manage to find many allies, political allies in the UK, to help him in this cause?
2: Apparently he got a very lukewarm welcome from uh, Neville Chamberlain, but one of the things that went in his favour quite early on was Winston Churchill coming into power, before Churchill was made the sort of leader of a government of all parties he gave a very heartfelt uh, welcome to Benish on his arrival because he, he saw Benesh as an ally as well and, knew, and, and understood the political and moral importance of having Benesh in the UK working for the defeat of Hitler. And that mission of victory without any compromises with Hitler was shared with Churchill, who clearly was somebody who had significant power, you know, the British Empire at, uh, as a sort of global superpower at the time. That was an, an, a hugely important bit of support.
1: And did Benesch share Churchill's passion, enthusiasm for these special operations that could take place to try and unsettle the Nazi occupation of these regions of Europe?
2: I mean, initially, he was, the SOE didn't exist when Benesch first came into exile, but a few things uh, tilted in his favour. One of them was, I say, Churchill coming into power. As you say, the other one was the formation of the special operations executive, which I think was in sort of about July of 1940. But just prior to that, one of the things Beneš did early on was he made requests for Czechoslovaks to go into exile and to fight. And a lot of them had heeded that call, including my grandfather and his cousin Jaroslav and Josef Publik. Many men, thousands of men went to fight in France, and they were defeated there, obviously, in the, in the summer of 1940. And they returned to the UK. But that meant that Beneš had the colonel of an army based in the UK that he could use to build with the idea of eventually coming back into the country to reclaim the country. So that was a big Philip. And the other thing he had was his erstwhile head of military intelligence uh, left the day before the Germans overran Czechoslovakia and returned to England. So he had some men, he had some political support and he had an intelligence network that was highly valuable to the UK as well. So it was natural in some ways that they would form a relationship with the Special Operations Executive when that was formed in July of 1940. Now, it's important to note, and this is often misunderstood about the Operation Anthropoid and other operations like it, they were not SOE missions. They were Czechoslovak missions, that the Czechoslovaks made use of the SOE training schools. So they had an arm's-length relationship with the UK. And in some ways, for Churchill, that was helpful because should the Czechoslovaks choose to do something quite politically big, like an assassination of a major Nazi, there was a degree of plausible deniability from the UK that they were not directly involved. I mean, I know the status of political assassinations is uh, somewhat a grey area of international law. It's certainly a, a big thing to do. And therefore, there was a natural relationship formed where Benes was given the use of the SOE training schools uh, to plan his own operations on Czechoslovak soil, and that's what he did.
1: Well, I think, quite precisely, assassinations are illegal under international law, but you're right, there are these legal jiu practices that take place that can try and justify these assassinations. So I, I remember recently uh, with the assassination of uh, General Kasim Soleimani, that wasn't classified as an assassination particularly by the United States because they were talking about it was potentially preemptive self-defense and all of these other legal terms that can help to justify it in a broader way. But uh, you're right, assassinations can most certainly have some unforeseen repercussions for the countries that launch them. And I know that we'll talk about that a little bit further. So take us into the seeds of this particular mission itself.
2: July 41 SOE was set up, the Czechoslovak head of military intelligence, František Morovets, began a, a strong relationship working mainly through his deputy, a man called Emil Strankmuller, who was set up to lead the development of Czechoslovak parachutists to go back to their home country. They initially recruited a, a couple of dozen men, amongst those, as I say, my grandfather and his cousin. And when I previously came on the podcast,
1: I spoke about their story of how they came uh, to be in in the UK at this time. An absolutely incredible story, may I say. And people have to go and, and listen to that podcast if if they haven't already. The journey that they took almost around the world, to get back and to be dedicated to the Czechoslovak cause is just truly incredible, as is the journey of the intelligence officials as well, which you touch upon. So please do go back and revisit that episode.
2: And the point was, my grandfather and his cousin, that's their personal story, but they were two of many thousands of men like them. And certainly a couple of dozen of those men were the ones which were recruited for these very dangerous, demanding missions. So they were sent to SRE training schools, done training in pistol shooting with Olympic champions, unarmed combat, taught silent killing from uh, guys who'd learnt to kill people with their bare hands in opium dens in in Hong Kong. The SOE had recruited this mix of people with unique skills, the absolute best, and they were there to then train dedicated, capable uh, young men and women to do the unthinkable. These initial missions were set up, and from Benesh's perspective, there were two key objectives to the missions that they had. And the most important was to maintain communications. To reclaim his authority, as I said before, as a leader, he needed to have credibility and he needed to have the ability to impact what was happening on the ground. There was a home resistance and it was made up of former members of the Czechoslovak military, but contact with it was difficult because the Nazis had worked hard to shut down the radio networks and such like. So the most important thing was to re-establish communications with the home army. They also knew that in the fairly short term, particularly as it was going to be a long time before Czechoslovakia was able to put boots on the ground. They needed to demonstrate to the Allies that Czechoslovaks were not subservient to Germany. You know, it was this mission about making sure that they weren't absorbed into Germany and seen as just a part of Germany. So they needed some message to be sent out to indicate the degree of defiance of Czechoslovakia against Nazi rule, particularly as, you know, Czechoslovakia was providing war armaments through things like the Works. So it was a major piece that, that Hitler was determined to integrate into the Third Reich. So the initial targets were, um, at this time, a man called Emmanuel Moravets, who was uh, the Minister for Propaganda. Who he'd, he'd been anti-the Munich Agreement, but had then flipped sides and had become a, a very strident voice for integration of Czechoslovakia with the Germans. And then the Chief of Police and Security Services, a Sudetenlander called Karl Hermann Frank. The men were being trained with these two initial objectives were about communications and about an assassination. Then in mid-1941... Benish wanted to demonstrate that he had a degree of control over the home country and he instigated a press boycott. It was very successful. I can't remember the precise figures, but basically, you know, to indicate that he had lines of communication, the ability to control the behaviour of the home population, he initiated a press boycott and it was very successful. And what is a press boycott, George? Basically, uh, he sent a message out for the public to boycott uh, any newspapers who were issuing pro-Nazi propaganda,
1: Right, I see. Okay, so trying to keep control over the flow of information.
2: Well, and demonstrating that people were loyal on the ground to him. It was a a way of demonstrating that, particularly to the Allies. Because, you know, who's Benesh now? You know, he's yesterday's man, he's not even the the President anymore. Well, he was demonstrating that he still had power and authority in the home country. And, of course, that was very indicative because, remember, at the time, people didn't know when the Second World War was going to end. They wanted to know that if they were going into these countries, they had the ability to influence what the... You know much like Ukraine today, you know the ability to mobilize the, the home army and the in the fight against the invader. unfortunately, um, in some regards, it was too successful <laughs> because Hitler had been kind of allowing a degree of sort of laissez-faire control over the protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. It was being run by a guy called Konstantin von Neurath, who was a old school German military guy who wasn't really a big a particular Nazi. Hitler was furious that this press boycott had happened. And so he decided it was time to, you know, really put the Czechs, uh, you know, the Slavs under a a tighter degree of control. And to do that, he called in his most dangerous and ruthless instrument, which was uh, Reinhard Heydrich. And now Heydrich, as you said, was not a nice man, um, expelled from the Navy for ungentlemanly conduct with a lady and his military career in tatters. He embraced the Nazis as a way of achieving power and influence and Formal respect. So he was no fan of the traditional military either. He came in basically to get the Slavs to buckle under, you know, adhere to what the Nazis had said. So, and he was successful. So he instigated what were called carrot and stick policies, where he rewarded people for, you know, good work in the factories and, you know, farms. But if anybody stepped out of line, they were treated ruthlessly. And so he did, you know, he ramped up executions and uh, harsh sanctions for people who were not towing the line. So it became then pretty obvious who the target for political assassination was. Uh, It moved from Karl Hermann Frank
1: to his new boss, Reinhard Heydrich. Okay, I see. So Heydrich is the, the new target. He's, I assume quite publicly and unpopular in the region as well so this is the ideal political target to take out it can show the the broader control of the government in exile and it can hopefully buoy the spirits of the local population showing them that they haven't been forgotten and that this war can be won so how does this mission unfold
2: well you're right he's a more high profile target a more dangerous target in some ways so the benefits of assassinating Heydrich are mirrored by the consequences of killing him. He's someone who's very close to Hitler. The implications of this geopolitically and for the war are massive. I mean, remember Czechoslovakia felt weakened by the fact it hadn't, as an entity, fought at the time of the Munich Agreement. Perhaps there was something here about the ability to reclaim a bit of national pride as well and a bit of a you know a national spirit. So, and Heydrich was very aware of the fact that he was. He famously flew in the Luftwaffe. You have to grudgingly admit he had a degree of sort of martial bravery, personal bravery, so he would take risks himself. And he would do things like driving through um, the protectorate in an open car because his view was that there was no way the Slavs would ever be brave enough to attack him. So, uh, you know, it was a sort of very interesting situation that was unfurling. So from the men that Strankmuller had recruited, they began to select those for those first few missions, as I say... And the first two important ones were a mission called Silver A, which was to re-establish communications with the home army and get a radio network going, a new radio network. And then the other was famously Operation Anthropoid. So this was the mission to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich. The two recruits for Operation Anthropoid were Josef Gabčik, who was a Slovak. It's important that he was a Slovak because this was very much to be a Czechoslovak mission, not a Czech mission. Uh, Slovakia was not part of the protectorate uh, and was more of a sort of seen as as, as a more pro-Nazi, slightly less tightly managed state. So it was very important that this was seen as a Czechoslovak mission. And the initial recruit for his partner was a man called Karol Svoboda, who was from a place called Slaney, which is just north of Prague. And they went through the SOE training. Um, They were highly secretive, so nobody really, very few people knew what their mission actually was. Then, unfortunately, in their final parachute jump training at Ringway Airport, now Manchester Airport, Svoboda got caught up in his line of his parachute and got badly injured. And so there was a delay while they tried to find a replacement. Now, Gabcik's firm friend was a Moravian uh, called Jan Kubis. They were contrasting characters. So Gabcik was a sort of fiery-tempered professional soldier. He'd been decorated for his what he'd done as a machine gunner in, in France and was a sort of obvious choice, really, one of the absolute best, uh, most trustworthy soldiers as far as the Czech military were concerned. Kubisch was a calmer character, more reserved. I think they were firm friends and that was seen as a big pro. Uh, so as well as preserving the sort of Czechoslovak flavour of the assassination team, it was seen that they worked together as a good team. So Kubitsch was recruited in, rushed through his training. The two men were parachuted in December 1941. Uh, they were parachuted along with uh, Silver A. So Silver A was made up of three men who were to undertake the communications mission, led by a man called uh, Alfred Bartosz. And then Gabcik and Kubish were um, sent on the same plane as Operation Anthropoid. Now, Bartosz, as the leader of the radio group, was the kind of the commanding officer on the ground of all the forces. So they landed, and Kubish and Gabcik went to ground, made contacts with the local resistance, and started to stake out Heydrich and to see what he was doing and where he was going. Uh, he was constantly on the move backwards and forwards because, for him, being the acting protector of Bohemia and Moravia was not the end point, it was the beginning. He was very career-driven about rising to the top of the Nazi hierarchy. He was number two in the SS to Heinrich Himmler, and he was seen by many as the natural successor to Hitler. In fact... Sorry,
1: George, did you say the the natural successor to Hitler? In the long run, yes. I think Hitler... saw a lot in Heydrich to admire. I I knew they were close, but I didn't realise they were that close. So this was the talk that was going on in the Nazi party that one day, Heydrich, uh, a younger, ruthless, perhaps not more ruthless than Hitler, but still most certainly ruthless figure, could rise up to be that next generation.
2: Well, he he was in some ways the archetypal Nazi, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed, he flew Luftwaffe missions. He was the kind of archetypal Nazi that was aspired to, and he was certainly scheming against Heinrich Himmler to take over as head of the SS. And in fact, it was that ambition, perhaps as well as the fact he was a thoroughly, probably one of the most unpleasant people ever to walk the earth, led him to chair the Wannsee Conference, which rubber-stamped the Final Solution in, in January 1942. So just at that time. Famously, there's a film of it, I think Kenneth Branagh plays uh, Reinhard Heydrich in the film of, of that conference, which was actually, it's a very good thing to watch because it actually uses the It was all carefully minuted, exactly what they were saying, which was, you know, the extermination of the Jewish people in Europe. It's absolutely horrific. So this is the man that he was. And again, so if you could think
1: of a candidate who was deserving of assassination, albeit that it's illegal, you couldn't create a better one. I think you're completely right. I mean, he sounds like one of the most... Unpleasant.
2: Inhuman, I think, is the closest.
1: And it's it's not like he didn't have competition, George. I mean there were some pretty unpleasant people around that time.
2: Well, and he that's how he made his name by being more ruthless than any of them.
1: Did Edison really
2: take credit for things he didn't invent? Wow. Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented, History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts.
3: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. I bet you get 30, 30, I bet you get 30, bet you get 20, 20, 20, bet you get 20, 20, bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
3: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: But this is no easy mission, then, when we come to Anthropoid, because he must have been highly protected, or, or was it that arrogance? Like you said, was he not highly protected? He went around in these open top cars did he shun his uh, protective guards to show that he was untouchable
2: absolutely that's exactly what he did yeah but nevertheless there were only two men um, on the ground with the support from some of the local resistance so it took a while for gabchik and kubish to stake hydric out and work out what their plan would be and in the meantime silver a the mission that had been set uh, was a success so silver a achieved its mission in short order so it got a radio working up and running It made contact with the local resistance, and it made contact with some of the key agents that Frantisek Moravec had groomed in his time as the head of military intelligence in Czechoslovakia, including, and I spoke about this a lot on the last podcast, a particular agent called A54, who was a high-ranking member of the German military intelligence. So Benesch was absolutely ecstatic with the success of Silver A. They reconnected him with vital intelligence and with the uh, communications on the ground.
1: Well, it not only strengthens communication, does it? But that's a massive bolstering and strengthening of the resistance itself. And politically, it was
2: massive for Benesh, because as I say, that's all he had. And so Benesh decided that he was going to send out some more of the missions, because this was clearly the way to go. Bartosz, who, as I said, was the leader of and the commander on the ground, sent back a very pointed message to Benesh, saying, I know our mission has been a success... But actually, don't be fooled. This is very, very, very difficult. And we, and please do not send out any more missions because we can barely cope with the, the men we've got to manage here now and we don't want any more. That uh, request was ignored and further missions were organised. So March of 1942, there was a mission called Operation Outdistance, which was sent to sabotage the Skoda Works, which was at the time a major piece of the uh, armaments production in Germany there was a mission called Operation Zinc, uh, which was sent to set up a Moravian intelligence network, so the central portion of the country. And slightly later, uh, in April of uh, 1942, there were some sabotage missions sent, including one called Operation Bioscope, which my grandfather's cousin Josef Bublik was a a member of. Extra men were deposited on the ground. How that played out is very relevant to anthropoids, so I'll just quickly go through this. Zinc was an absolute disaster, Operation Zinc. So It was dropped in Slovakia by mistake, so the men had to make a border crossing from Slovakia to Moravia before they could even get started. Now, the leader of that was a man called Aldrich Pechal, and he had a a gunfight with border guards on the way and killed two border guards, which is obviously a very high-profile incident and not the way to keep a low-profile when you're starting an intelligence network. And unfortunately, in the melee, he dropped his briefcase, which included ID papers for him and for the uh, two members of his group. So it completely uh, collapsed and fell apart. He realised that the Nazis would be staking out his parents' address because that was nearby. So Pechal went to stake out his parents' address, completely distraught. And Mix and Garrick, Garrick was a young, I think only a teenager at the time, was a radio operator who my grandfather trained for his mission. He eventually separated from Mix and found his way into Prague. And in Prague, he tried some of the safe addresses that he'd been given and realised that there was nobody who was going to help him. So he took all of his information and all of his uh, huge amounts of Czech currency that he'd been given and went to Prague uh, police station and gave himself up and spilled the beans on just about everything that he knew in terms of who was involved with the UK-based Czech uh, special forces. He was a Slovak as well, and he viewed that if he, as a Slovak, he could just say, He was very naive and just thought that they would just sort of let him off with a reprimand.
1: But let's make that really clear, George. Basically, what we're talking about here is that so many of the missions as a result of this had been completely compromised.
2: Yes, and Garrick was in the employ of the Gestapo for most of the rest of the war. Garrick was not as dangerous as he could have been, though, in that he was only a young man and not the most capable individual in many regards. But there was another Operation Out Distance. That operation failed dismally. So morale was very low amongst the resistance forces. And one of the men in that mission was a man called Carol Churder. He would also uh, be somebody who would turn to the Gestapo. In those missions, there was that pointed warning from Bartosz that, you know, this could all fall apart. And unfortunately, that was the way it played out. And two of the men eventually became turncoats and gave um, up intelligence information to the Gestapo. Now, as I say, Operation Outdistance failed because they failed to uh, pick up their homing beacon. It got damaged in the drop. The RAF mission to bomb the Skoda Works was a complete failure. But because Zinc had failed just before Outdistance, Bartosz made the decision to involve Anthropoid, so Gabchik and Kubish, in Outdistance to help because they were struggling to find the opportunity to kill Hydric. They needed to do something constructive. Now, that was in some ways good to try and increase morale, but. It broke one of the key rules of intelligence, which is you you must partition the missions, you must not get them mixed up because you know secrets will leak across, and that's exactly what happened so through the course of the failed mission out distance, Bartosh worked out Gabchik and Kubisch were there to assassinate Heydrich, and he was horrified, absolutely horrified because he knew again he'd sent this warning that that things were in danger of falling apart now he knew that assassinating. Hydrich would destroy, not just put their lives at risk, because they were brave men and they knew what they were doing, but would in fact lead to the complete destruction of the entire Prague resistance network. The Gestapo would root out and destroy all that was left of the intelligence network. So he he sent a message through his radio back to Venesh and František Moravec and the intelligence team and said, we've worked out what Gabcik and Kubish are doing. Please don't do it. If you're going to assassinate somebody, maybe go back to the Minister for Propaganda, Emmanuel Moravec, who I know was the target... Prior to Hydrich coming into power because he was worried about the scale of repercussions. Now, he received no response to his telegram to the um, Czechoslovak military in the UK. In fact, Gabchik got a private message in a cipher known only to him. And from that point on it was fairly obvious that the mission was going to happen. Bartosz had a sort of nervous episode under the huge stress and was bedridden with rheumatoid arthritis. And Adolf Palka, who was the nominal leader of Operation Outdistance, and was the next ranking officer, took de facto control of the group of men in the local intelligence network. And so it was in this kind of particularly delicate time, Gabčik and Kubisch decided to, or found the opportunity to conduct the assassination. So exactly 80 years ago, 27th of May, 1942, the assassination happened. So Heydrich disdained visible protection. So he was in his open-top chauffeur-driven car, doing his route from Prague across to the, I think to the, perhaps to the railway station, I'm not sure, but I think he was on his way one of his regular trips. Kubis and Gabčik had staked out his route and knew that there was a hairpin bend near a streetcar stop at a certain point in Prague. And they basically, famously, it's depicted in films like Operation Daybreak and the more recent film Anthropoid. They waited for his car to slow. Gabčik threw his coat off of his shoulder, revealing the gun that he'd just assembled. Heydrich, saw what was happening and started to rise from his car and get his revolver out. Gabchik's gun jammed, and then Kubisch appeared from behind and flung a hand grenade at the rear of the car, which blew up the back of the car door and injured Heydrich quite seriously, uh, drove, I think, horsehair into his spleen and various other internal injuries. So he didn't immediately die, um, and the two men managed to escape from the scene. Heydrich was flown to Berlin for um, emergency surgery, and, and he died matter of days, probably 10 days or so later, he died of blood poisoning. So as predicted, all hell broke loose. Martial law declared, house to house searches. And there were these sort of dozen or so men in Prague at the time, uh, agents. So the men from out distance, Zinc, uh, Bioscope and um, Bivouac was another sabotage mission. My grandfather's cousin was there. So there were these small number of men who were being moved from safe house to safe house to try and avoid the dragnet. And eventually, it was agreed that they would be sheltered in the church, in the crypt of the local church, uh, St Cyril and Methodius. The men were there hidden in the basement. Some of the men found their way to the church. So the two assassins, Gabčik and Kubisch, Apalka, the leader of Outdistance, another member of a silver called Valchik, a man called Hruby, and then two members of Operation Bioscope, Josef Publik and Boslav Kuba. Anyway, there were seven men in this church crypt, and the famous story was that they... 800 SS troops came and flushed them out over a night of fighting. Well, this
1: is it, isn't it? This is the famous final last stand. The assassination itself didn't go to plan, but in the end achieved its ultimate goal. But when all hell breaks loose and all of these secret agents have to make their way to one place, it almost is inevitable that it ends in one thing. This this equivalent to the, the Alamo of the Second World War, I guess, George. And I've been there several times and it,
2: I know many people who've been there and they're all deeply affected by the visit because it's left pretty much there's bullet holes on the wall from where anybody who ever goes to Prague must go there. It's bullet holes on the wall from where the Germans tried to machine gun the single window into the cellar, the wall where the men were trying to dig themselves out to try and get into the sewers to escape. They were fighting for their survival. So, you know, even though the Germans threw 800 SS troops at them over a period of 12 hours, it was a long time before the men succumbed. And finally, it's a very personal story for me, of course, because of the family connection as well. So how they'd been found was this man, Carol Churder from Operation Outdistance. So he had been uh, separated uh, and he was staying at his mother's farm south of Bohemia. And he, again, like Garrick, turned himself in to the Gestapo and gave up information about where the men were. He didn't actually know, but he gave a contact which led them to the local resistance and the families that had been sheltering them. And the repercussions were... Pretty horrific. Some people say 5,000 dead as a direct result, uh, 3,000 of them Jewish people. I mean, you know, <laughs> they were seen to somehow to be, uh, you know, the, the instigators of this, which is clearly not the case. And even if it was, you know, I mean, uh, the mind boggles, doesn't it? 3,000 Jewish people. Um, the town of Lidizi, famously, 350 victims. So Hitler tried, decided to make an example of a town. He picked a town pretty much at random, lined up all of the men and shot them, his army. Women were sent to concentration camps where most died, and even the children, many were killed. Um, some were sent to German
1: families. So this wasn't in any way a proportionate response. This was a impulsive response driven by rage and anger at the hands of Hitler, who had seen his heir apparent killed in Czechoslovakia. And the whole key here was to make sure that this was to never happen again. At anywhere else along the Third Reich.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. It was a direct threat to Hitler. And I say, in addition, I think 250 relatives of the parachutists were killed as well. My cousins in Czechoslovakia were spared a little bit because Josef Bublik was not recognised by Carol Churder and Willem Gorick as his body was laid out on the pavement. So that was a fortunate one for the, uh, the Bubliks of Barnov in Moravia. As I say, there were many death Lidizi was as they made an example of as was the town of lizaki which was actually close to where the wireless receiver was as well so one of the things it did was though you're right it was a reaction out of proportion and full of anger it's hard to look at the second world war now without hindsight and seeing the whole picture but at the time as with any situation hitler wanted it and required a degree of political credibility much as you know you might say vladimir putin is still, you know, there are still diplomats in Moscow as there were diplomats in Germany at the, at the time as well. So, what this did was, though, it was so extreme that it shone a light on the true heart and nature of the Nazi regime. At the time, I think that was senior American senators and congressmen were saying that they were more invigorated by Lidizi than they were even by Pearl Harbor. So, at the time, it was seen as an absolutely horrific um, genocide. And it really mobilised a lot of people who were wavering against Hitler and the Nazi regime. So, again, perhaps an unintended consequence, but this was the level of emotion and seriousness with which these events were associated.
1: But this brings me on to my final question to you, I suppose, George, because to what extent was this worth it? Was this assassination politically or militarily worth it? Because Not only do you have this mass amount of reprisal, something that was most clearly predicted by the operatives themselves, but could have been predicted by anyone with a rational mind that this was going to be the way it went. And then it also destroys this entire painstakingly built up, invaluable network of secret agents and informants and intelligence and communications operatives that are just destroyed in one foul swoop. Was there any positives to come out of this? Was it worth
2: doing? That will always be the $65,000 question. I mean, I think one thing to be clear is it brought full recognition of Czechoslovakia by the Soviet Union, United States and the UK. And they agreed to th- that the exile government was the government. Uh, they agreed it would be represented at the peace table. This was all happened in the direct aftermath of the Heydrich assassination. They agreed that the country would be reconstituted to its pre-Munich borders. And more controversially, they also agreed to the mass expulsion of Sudetenlanders. So there's a lot wrapped up in all that, but it certainly had real long-term political implications. And remember, the calculus here is the impact of this accident against the possibility of the future enslavement and systematic genocide of all Slavs in Czechoslovakia. There's a horrible calculus to make. And again, I said the 5,000 killed as a direct result it shifted the Nazis into another gear in terms of the degrees of reprisals and the harshness of how Czechoslovakia was managed for the remainder of the war. So it's a very difficult kind of cost-benefit analysis to do. You're right, the local resistance was completely wiped out, but it did recover, and there were a whole sequence of other missions towards the end of the war, including my grandfather's mission, Operation Foursquare. But it did secure Czechoslovakia's future as a country. Again, unfortunately, not for that long, because there was that, period from 1945 to 1948 where the future of Czechoslovakia was in some doubt, where there was a potential future there for Czechoslovakia. Obviously with the communist coup in 1948, that all disappeared again. And the men like my grandfather and and many others like them were victimized by the, the communist regime and the communist government for many, many years. It's a difficult question and I don't think we'll ever get to the answer. But from my sort of the personal perspective I had on it was Towards the end of my grandfather's life, Czechoslovakia was reconstituted initially as a democratic country, but then subsequently split into two countries, Czech Republic and Slovakia. And my grandfather and his colleagues were all rehabilitated and were recognised for what they'd done in the Second World War. They were actually personally invited by Václav Havel to the church at St Cyril and Methodius in 1990 for a commemoration. And my grandfather couldn't make it because of ill health, but I've actually got the postcard that they sent him. At the time, from the Church of St Cyril and Methodius, and with personal messages from all the surviving parachutists of that time ultimately it 's a very difficult question, but you know those two countries, Czech Republic and Slovakia are, are here today as democratic, free peoples. The benefits of that are every day you know
1: <laughs> absolutely, and partly thanks to edvard Benez's, um quite real politique political calculations and and rational way of thinking, I guess. What happens to, to Benez?
2: Benez's story is ultimately um, a sad one. It's all tied up really with the post war. So, Czechoslovakia was seen to be within the Soviet sphere of influence. So, having fought against one um, kind of autocratic controlling force, Benez over time was forced to make concessions with the Soviet Union, with Stalin, and with the, the communist government. And then, what happened? was waves of subversion. I think he finished his life basically under house arrest from the communists and unable to take an active part in the government. So he was sort of kept as a political prisoner at the end of his life because of his kind of political value. You know, famously, his foreign minister, Jan Masaryk, the son of Thomas Masaryk, the founder of modern Czechoslovakia, was thrown from a window, third floor of his foreign ministry by communist agents, and the communist government took over for many years. So He didn't live to see the fruits of his labours, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) And, you know, if there was ever a pertinent reminder needed of life behind the Iron Curtain, as we talk once again of, of new Iron Curtains being formed and the future of, of sweden finland and ukraine i think that uh, that this part of history really casts light on that and gives us some reflections for the future george thank you so much for your time today thanks for coming back on the podcast and tell us again the name of your book and where we can buy it books
2: foursquare the last parachutist it's available from all good bookstores and on amazon and it's had some really good feedback i'm really pleased with it so if, if anybody does pick up a copy i'd really appreciate some reviews online and some feedback
1: wonderful george thanks so much you're always welcome on the podcast thanks james thanks so much for listening and if you want more you can now subscribe to our brilliant warfare wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes get cutting edge military histories delivered directly to your inbox each week every week for free enjoy